In Latin, that's fiat lux, let there be light. Good to be with you tonight. Happy to have this chance to honor the God of heaven and uh, talk with you this evening, study together about worship and about what scriptural worship is and the importance of it. This is a lesson that um, the content of which just is something that needs repeating every once in a while uh, to make sure that not only those of us who are mature in the faith, but those of us who are just coming along, uh, maybe have some questions about why we worship the way we do, why don't we worship some other way, uh, what can we do to please God in worship, what are we really trying to accomplish in worship, and what's it really all about? These are some of the questions we're going to try to deal with tonight. So what exactly does God want in worship, and what form does he want, and what is it that he's expecting from us, particularly in our assemblies, and what will motivate us to give him what he wants? So our goal in this lesson is to explore those things. And I want to say at the outset that this is the lesson that uh, I hope the young people will pay, pay special attention to. Uh, more and more as you mature in Christ, and I'm looking at several new Christians over here to my left, and there are others in the auditorium tonight, more and more you'll have questions about why we do things the way we do. Why don't we do them some other way? Why can't we do them some other way? And to have these principles completely settled in your mind is very, very beneficial going forward in your service to the Lord. Let's just start with some basic ideas about the nature of worship. God deserves your worship. He deserves It was on at one point. Uh, how about now? Okay. He deserves all that we can give him to honor him. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, you have this throne scene. The people of heaven itself are surrounding the throne upon which God sits. There are angels and seraphim and all of the hosts of heaven and they are saying you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created God is worthy of all of our praise he is worthy of glory and honor because first of all he is powerful and he is our creator we owe our existence to him and the existence of everything is owed to him and so he is worthy of worship for that reason alone but you also see in revelation chapter 5 and verse 13 where heaven itself realizes the great lengths to which god has gone to save mankind as the sacrifice lamb appears in heaven itself and the lamb is worthy because he has redeemed us and god is worthy because god sent the lamb to redeem us and so all of heaven is saying blessing and honor and glory and power to be him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. God is worthy of our worship, praise, honor, and adoration because he created us, everything exists because of him, and he redeemed us by sending his son to die for us. And so the challenge before us 
is to give the Lord the glory that is due to His name. That's a lot of glory. That's a lot of worship. We owe Him all of that because we owe Him our very existence. So to be obsessed with glorifying God is, ought to be the consuming passion of every human being. I mean, we just, if, if you're thankful for your very existence and everything, every good thing you have surrounding you in this world and all that there is in the natural world and the spiritual world around you and every spiritual blessing in Christ and just every other good thing we can possibly name, all of it goes back to God. And surely, because He has granted all of this to us and provided all of this for us, we not only should want to worship Him and see that it is our duty to worship Him, but be thrilled to worship Him and motivated to worship Him. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12 tells us that we who first trusted in Christ, especially, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Little word be there, the existing word. You know, you be, you exist. What do we exist for? What do we be for? Well, we be to the praise of His glory. We exist to glorify God, to praise and worship Him. God deserves our worship. In that, compliance with God's will shows our love and respect for Him. God, Psalms 89 and verse 7 says, is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. God is awesome. He's the definition of awesome. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere-present. He is, he is all of that and more than we can even describe. His ways are beyond our understanding or comprehension. His greatness is, far, is, is bigger than we can even imagine and doesn't compare to the greatness of any other thing or person that we know. Here is the greatness of God and the power of God. If you greatly fear someone, if you highly respect their power, you're going to want to comply with their wishes. If, you, if they are also someone who loves you and has shown just all sorts of kindness towards you, you're going to want to respect your wish, their wishes not only because you fear them, their power, you respect that, but you love them for the way that they've loved you. Both of those things together come together in the way that we think and feel about God. So I like to ask this question, you know, where does the 800-pound gorilla sit? Where does the 800-pound gorilla sit? Anywhere he wants to, right? God made all the 800-pound gorillas and every other thing of any power, you know, that you can imagine. Where's God going to sit? Wherever he wants to. What are you going to do for God? How are you going to show that you love Him? How are you going to show that you fear and respect Him? By doing 
whatever he wants me to do. That's how. <laughs> whatever he wants me to do. And it really, from that standpoint, doesn't really matter if I see the point in it or the good in it or whatever, if I know that God has asked it of me, if I know that that's what he wants me to do to show both honor, fear, respect, and love for him, that's a done deal. Why wouldn't you? What excuse could you have for not doing what he's asked? God's immeasurable power demands our unfaltering compliance. Worship that is directed toward God then, what we're saying about worship is, that worship that is directed toward God must be directed by God if it is to be pleasing to Him. It's important to listen to what God wants before we worship Him and not just offer Him any old thing that we might want to give Him. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wise man there says, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, walk prudently. That is to say, walk wisely and carefully. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. When you come to the house of God, you better draw near to God in worship, firstly, to listen to what he wants. Draw near to hear rather than just to do any old thing and offer the sacrifice of of fools, something that God maybe doesn't want, doesn't comply with His will, hasn't asked for. We need to carefully listen to what God wants before offering sacrifices of worship that God will regard as evil. And God will regard as evil anything that's not in compliance with His will. So we need to be cautious about how we worship, and we need to understand that not every kind of worship is acceptable to God. In fact, lots of kinds of worship are not acceptable to God. I've seen um, sporting events, football games particularly, some of the greatest plays I've ever seen on the football field. The athletes just outdid themselves. Maybe there was a circus catch in the end zone or some, you know, interception or uh, pickup of a fumble and run for a touchdown and, uh, you know, the defensive was blocking for the guy that was returning and all of that. It's just all going on and, you know, the, the play is over and everybody's jumping up and down. It's the most amazing thing that you've ever seen. And then what? All of a sudden, the announcer says, there's a flag on the field. There's a flag on the field. Somebody did something that was not in accordance with the rules. And what happens? About nine times out of ten, what happens is the entire play is wiped out. It doesn't matter how good you did it. It doesn't matter how great the athletes were. It doesn't matter how fantastic the circus catch in the end zone was where the guy caught it with one hand upside down and falling backwards. It doesn't matter. There's a flag on the field. And all of that is for nothing. And so it is in worship. We can do amazing things in worship. Lift our voices in song in the most beautiful harmonies. Hear sermons that have been, you know, just uh, hammered out and crafted and, 
you know, all of the things in him that you'd want from Scripture to insight and all of this sort of thing. And we're doing that and we're doing this and we're doing the other thing and all of these things. But if there's a flag on the field and something that we're doing is not pleasing to God, something that he hasn't asked for or sometimes even something they said not to do and we go ahead and do it, there's a flag on the field. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he's talking to people who are big worshipers of little God, G-O-D, you know. But also they're worshipers of an unknown God. They figure maybe to get all their bases covered, they're going to worship this God that nobody really knows who it is, but in case they miss one. And so Paul tells them about the God they don't know about. And he says about that God that that God isn't worshipped in temples made with hands as though he needed anything. Because he gives us life, breath, and everything. He says, you are worshipping a God that you don't know. But the God who is, isn't going to accept this kind of worship. The kind of worship you're offering. He says, the times of this ignorance God overlooked but now has commanded all men everywhere to repent. To repent of what? Worshiping Him in the way that He has not prescribed. Worshiping Him in a way that is according to your own devices and your own likes and your own making and not what God has asked for. See, the problem in Athens, Greece was not that they weren't worshipers. Oh, they were worshipers all over the place. It wasn't that they weren't sacrificing to worship. They were sacrificing all kinds of things to worship. problem is they didn't know who God truly was and they weren't worshiping him in the way that he'd asked to be worshipped. The times of this ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere, that's you and me, to repent. We can't worship God any old way we want. Worshiping ignorance is not acceptable to God. He may have overlooked it and winked at it in the Old Testament period when people didn't know better because he hadn't revealed his will, but he's revealed his will now all over the world. Worship that is offered in ignorance is not pleasing to him. There's a flag on the field. Worship that is man-made, where people follow the commandments of men. God never said to do it, but people come up with traditions and commandments of their own. Jesus said, Jesus said that there were people in his day, some of the leaders of the Jewish religion, he says, in vain they worship me. That means it's empty, it's worthless, it's useless. In vain they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. They're just doing what people say to do. They're just doing what men say to do. And Jesus says, it's vain, it's empty, it's worthless, it's hollow, it's meaningless to the God of heaven. God's not going to accept worship that's offered in ignorance. He's not going to accept worship that just men make up because this is what they want to do. He's not going to accept worship connected to that that is self-imposed. It may even be something that is, is really hard to do, that, but it's something you've imposed on yourself. And you're going to offer this to God. God doesn't want anything like that. Never ask for that. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 21. He, he says, you've got people making rules for themselves 
Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So again, these are man-made laws, getting back to Matthew 15. But he says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. The King James Version there says, will worship. It's worship, but it's what you will, not what God wills. You decided to make up this this liturgy, this form of worship. False humility, it looks very, you know, you're humbling yourself, you're bowing down before a statue of an angel, or before a statue of Mary, or what, you know, you can name a thousand things people have come up with. It looks very pious, very self-sacrificial. It's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, it's of no value at all. God won't accept it. And then there's worship that is close to what God has asked for, but it's worship that is self-righteous. Where a person feels like, acts like, has the attitude that God, God just needs to be uh, really happy that I'm worshiping Him and uh, thankful that I you know, lower myself to do something like this for God. I mean, I'm such a great person, right? God is honored by the fact that I worship Him, is the attitude a lot of people have. Look what I am doing. I'm coming to church. I'm going through all of this stuff. I'm a pious person. I'm a holy person. I am, in the words of Isaiah, as Isaiah talked about people in Isaiah chapter 65, and these people were not holy, they were not righteous, but they acted like they were. And they go and they worship God and they also do all sorts of worldly things. And then they, they, somebody, they see somebody on the street and they say, Oh, don't come close to me. I'm holier than you. Don't touch me. I am, I am holier than you. It's like that Pharisee that went up to the temple to pray and the tax collector was there. And the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> you know, here, here I am. You're just so, uh, so really blessed to have me here talking to you because I'm not like other people. And you have this self-righteousness in worship that God does not accept. Sadly, a lot of people spend a lot of energy, time, and effort worshiping God in these unacceptable ways. They please themselves, but they don't please God. They're present in a worship assembly, and they may feel like God is there, but He is not. It reminds me of the story about the little boy who was attending church one Sunday morning. Uh, Really had a big time. They did all sorts of things, fun and games, all sorts of things. Had a lot of, a lot of fun. Didn't do really anything God said to do, but they were having a lot of fun. And, and he, he, he goes home and kneels beside his bed that night and says his prayers. And he said, God, we sure had a good time at church today. Wish you could have been there. But God wasn't there. Because people thought, you know, Worshiping God is, is fun and games, and, and uh, whatever we want to do, we can do, and we can't. 
Not in honor God, we can't. I want to talk about worshiping God in the body of Christ and how that compliance shows respect and love. When we do what God wants us to do, that's, that's how we show we love Him. It's not all about having a good time. It's not all about, all about fun and games or doing what we want to do. It's doing what God wants us to do. That's what honors Him. When Jesus had this discussion with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 23, she was very concerned about where to worship. Should we worship here on this mountain, on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had long worship? Should we worship in Jerusalem, where the Jews say? It was a big question for her and for all Samaritans and for many Jews. And Jesus said, it's, it's neither here nor there. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. That's what God wants. God wants somebody who's going to worship Him in spirit, with the heart, with the attitude that ought, ought to, you know, anybody ought to have if they're going to honor, honor God. In spirit and in truth, according to His will. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit with the inner man fully involved and in truth according to His will. We'll talk just a little bit about that word worship. We've been talking about worship for about 20 minutes right now and I haven't defined the word. Let's take a step back and talk about really what, is, what does worship really even mean? In the body of Christ, worship involves showing adoration. To say, if you say to your wife, I adore you, you mean you really deeply love her. You admire her. You are maybe even in awe of her. Your love runs deep. The word it's most commonly translated worship in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word proskuneo. And it means literally to kiss toward. And somebody says, well, how does it mean to kiss toward? What is that about? Well, that's the etymology of the word. But the idea is to show affection. So when we, worshiping God, when we worship God, we're showing affection for God. We're showing how deeply we love Him. And the word adoration is really a really good translation of that word. We adore God. That's what worship is all about. Showing our adoration for God. There's another word that's sometimes translated worship. It's latruo. It comes from uh, a Greek word latris, which really means to, to be a servant. And uh, it's sometimes translated worship in the New Testament, but it, it's a little bit confusing what it is. Because what, what this kind of service is, is the service of a servant. It's not so much an expression of love, but it's what a servant would do for his master. Maybe out of love, but it's not an expression of love. It is service. It is service. And um, I understand, and you need to understand, that everything that a Christian does for God and in his service is latruo. It's service. And I've heard people say, well, that means I'm worshiping God all the time. In some kind of a sense, I suppose you are. If you're a Christian, you're to be in a worshipful state, a serving state all the time. You're loving God all of the time. But that's not what we're talking about in this lesson. What we're talking about in this lesson is when we come into the assembly of the saints, there are special ways that we are to show our adoration to God. What are those? 
What do they involve in the church, in the assembly of the saints? There's a difference between the service a Christian offers God daily and the worship God has prescribed for the assembly of the church. When you go over to passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that describe the taking of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 14 that describes the exercise of spiritual gifts, but also singing and prayer and other things that go on in a worship assembly, what you'll notice in those texts is that there are specific things that are to go on and they are to happen in certain ways. When in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins to talk about the problems that Corinth was having taking the Lord's Supper, five times he mentions it being in the church or in the assembly or when they came together, five times. It is something that is done in the assembly of the church. It is corporate worship, part of the worship of the body. There's something special about it. It's not done by individuals. It's not what you do day by day, which may be service or worship of some kind, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. That kind of worship. I'm talking about the kind of worship that's described in 1 Corinthians 14. Where over and over and over again, Paul talks about what's supposed to be going on and what's not supposed to be going on in the assembly of the church. And for instance, he will say in that context in chapter 14 and verse 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a tongue, has a teaching, revelation. Let all things be done for edification. So whatever you're doing in the worship... Let it all be done for edification. And if somebody's speaking in a tongue, which they could do back then, as we talked about this morning, that's been done away with now. But he says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. He's talking about in verse 28. Then skip down to verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. And then in verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. We'll talk about that some more at length in a bit. But he's talking about in the assembly of the church. So what's, what's needed in a worship assembly? What's involved in worship, in a worship assembly? First thing that's needed is you. There can be no worship assembly, no worship in an assembly, if there are no assemblers. And so if you are not here to assemble, to worship, whatever praise, honor, glory, and adoration you would have or could have given God is not given to God. To the degree that He could have been honored, He is not being honored because you have chosen to absence yourself from the assembly. First thing that's needed to worship God in the assembly is you in the assembly. And one willfully chooses not to be in the assembly. I'm going to put this as kindly and bluntly as I can. Kindly and bluntly. <laughs> when someone chooses not to worship God in the assembly of the saints, you are robbing God of his honor. 
you are robbing God of honor that is due him from you. I don't think we should feel very good about that. Someone says, what's wrong with missing church? That's what's wrong. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's a direct statement. It's a violation of the command of God. But I'm talking about something that's deeper even than that command. And that is what a worship assembly is all about. And that is honoring the God of heaven. And if you're not here to do it, you're robbing him of honor that is due. We understand sometimes people can't be here. Sometimes we have physical limitations. We have sicknesses. We have other problems that prevent. But just know this. God deserves your honor. And if you can give it, you should give it. What are the things we do in a worship assembly? Acts of love and adoration. We sometimes call these the five items of worship. That sometimes has even been mocked and laughed at by uh, sometimes even some of our brethren who say, well, five, five items of worship. We do a whole lot of different things in worship. In the assembly of the church, these are the five things we do. There is one other thing that could be added to that that's said to be done in the assembly of the church. I've left it off this list because it doesn't happen often, but these are the things we often commonly do. The thing that's left off this list is what's prescribed to be done in the assembly of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that is to withdraw from somebody. That's also to be done in the assembly of the church. But these five things, taking the Lord's Supper, what do we do when we take the Lord's Supper? We come together on the first day of the week to break bread, as they did in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. It's a communion of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's a communion of those things, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. We remember Jesus and what he's done for us in taking these emblems. And the way prescribed, in the exact way prescribed, according to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and following. I want you to think about how much love is in the Lord's Supper. How much adoration is in the Lord's Supper. What are we doing here? You remember that lamb in, first, in Revelation chapter 5? The worthy lamb? And all of heaven fell down before that lamb and said, You are worthy. You remember the lamb that loved us? And died for us? And we love him back. And we remember all of that in the Lord's Supper. It's an act of great love and adoration from God to us and from us to him. It's love reciprocated. It's love communicated. It's love that's shared in the body and the blood of Jesus. We sing 
Paul, talking about what he did in the assembly of the church, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Someone has observed that those who have the greatest influence in shaping hearts and minds of any generation are not the folks that write the laws, they're the folks that write the songs. Songs define generations of people. Change people's minds about things, for good and bad. Plato believed that musical training, I'm quoting him, Plato believed that musical training is a more potent instrument than any other because rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul on which they mightily fasten. I think Plato might have been onto something there. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 that as we sing, we're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're singing with grace in our hearts to God. These are life-changing moments, moments which express love, which lift up our spirits to God and help us to experience His truth in the inward man. It's what singing is all about as we sing those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we pray in the assemblies. Again, Paul talking about what he did in the assembly. He says, I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. We talked this morning about an incident where the apostles assembled together with the disciples in Acts chapter 4. And they prayed. And the place where they assembled was shaken. In prayer, we're communicating with the God who loved us. We're thanking Him and praising Him and asking Him and Uh, making supplications to Him and intercessions, all out of love for Him, and He answers out of love for us. Here is adoration. And when we listen to His Word preached, what are we doing? What are we doing? I talked some time ago about when Sandy and I were long-distance dating and writing a few letters to one another and how precious those letters were back in the day. God, God has written to us. The New Testament has often been described as a, a book of love letters and I think in a lot of ways it is. God expressing His love to us in these words. And when we come together and we hear His Word preached, It's not that I have any words that are all that important, but God does, and I'm trying to share those with you and tell you about how much He loves you and what He wants for you and what He wants from you and how He's prepared heaven for you. And then we give. And giving is, again, an outcropping of our love. It's a pattern for churches to follow. We've talked about that a lot at Eastside. But the reason that we give is first we've given ourselves to the Lord. He was rich. He made himself poor because of us. We love him so much we want to give back. We want to do something for him and for his cause and for others who love him. We want to support his cause. We give cheerfully and we give liberally. Because Jesus gave for us out of love. We give love. And so my point is, if you want to look at You know, the question is, okay, God is such a God of love, and how can we show love, and what can we come up with? We don't have to come up with anything. God's already come up with it. These are the ideal ways of expressing adoration to the one who loved us. These are the ways that he's given us to show adoration to him. Real love, real commitment, real devotion. These sometimes lamb 
you know, laughed at and mocked five items of worship. These are the things God has put in the assembly. And people go uh, over land and sea around the world in their imaginations trying to think of ways that we can show special love for the God of heaven in unique ways. And they're in the book all along. They're right here. They're right here. And there are two aspects of doing these things that I think are important to realize. First of them is to do them out of love, and secondly, to do them in the way God's asked. Because that is doing them out of love. So here are keys to wonderful worship. If you want a wonderful worship experience, understand that orderliness leads to edification. That we will be edified and encouraged ourselves, but also we will be truly honoring God if we do things in the way that He has ordered them. I mentioned earlier 1 Corinthians 14. I'd like to go back there for a minute. In verse 33, uh, Paul says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And we've talked a lot about there is a recipe, there's a pattern, there's a consistency in the way all churches are to worship and do their work. God's not the author of confusion. He authored what's supposed to go on in the assembly, and it's not confusion. What's supposed to go on in the assembly is peace. And there should be consistency from one church to another church because we're just doing what God said to do if we're following His Word. So in 1 Corinthians 15, God's not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And then, still in the same context, talking about what is done in the assembly of churches of the saints, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. The word that's translated decently comes from the Greek word euskimenos, you means good, and scheme means scheme. So it's a good scheme. It's a, you got to have a good plan. It's a good arrangement. Let all things be done with, with a good arrangement and a good plan. Let all things be done decently and in order. And order, you can look it up in, you know, any good lexicon. An arranging, an arrangement, a fixed succession, observing a fixed time. Which is to say... Uh, things come one right after another in an orderly fashion. Everything doesn't happen at once. There's not confusion, something going on over here, something else going on over here, or several things going on all at once. Nobody can tell what's going on. That's not a worship assembly that honors God. Although there are plenty of places and plenty of folks that worship that way that think they are honoring God, that is not. It's not in order. It's not in order. And we have people from time to time in the Lord's body that think, well, we, we need to do several things on top of one another. We need to take the Lord's Supper and hold hands and sing a song while we're doing that and on and on and turn the lights down while you're at it and all, all this other stuff. It's confusing. It's not one thing at a time. Let's honor God decently and in order. It's really simple. 
Engaging in multiple items of worship simultaneously or incomprehensibly does not honor God or edify others. So what are some keys to a wonderful worship as we conclude? Simple things. Don't try to improve on God's plan. God's got a plan. It's in the book. Follow it. He's not pleased with innovation. He's not pleased with people following the commandments of men. Never has been. Is not going to be now. Secondly, you really want to try to improve worship? Improve you. Excel. You excel. That's how you can improve worship. Get yourself right with God. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah says, and speaking for God in verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. God cannot stand it. When we're, we're, we're living in sin and we come here and we're supposed to offer holy worship to Him. But the thing is, we say, well, all of us are sinners. Right. We, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we don't have to come before Him with all that filth on us because he, he, He's, through His grace, offered us cleansing. We can be pure. God wants worship from those who are pure. He deserves worship from our, those who are pure. Not because we've lived perfectly, but because we've fallen in the mud, but we've gotten up and we've cleansed ourselves in the blood of Jesus Christ. Cleansed ourselves in His blood. Get yourself right with God. Yearn to worship. Not just you're willing to do it, Not just you kind of want to do it, but you yearn to do it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Psalm 42 and verse 1 says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Like that thirsty deer looking for a drink on a hot summer day. He goes on to say, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here's somebody who is Dying to worship. It's not just that they want to. It's they're passionate about it. They yearn to. They have to. They long to. And lastly, when you're in a worship assembly, participate wholeheartedly. David said, I will praise you, O Lord, with, my, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. If you will worship God from the heart with every fiber of your being, you will be amazed at what an improvement it will make in the worship assembly. Not for everybody else necessarily, but for you. Are you somebody who's not getting anything out of worship? I've said several times, it's, uh, it's like the hokey pokey, right? You've got to put your whole self in if you're going to get your whole self out. All of yourself in every worship. We all have things going on. 
We all have lives to live, details of lives that distract us, things that come to mind in the middle of a worship assembly that can easily derail us from doing the things God wants us to do. Keep your focus. God deserves it. For the relatively short time that we meet every week in an assembly, let each person here determine right now tonight that we are going to excel in worshiping the God of heaven. Tonight, would you give yourself to God? If you've not done that, perfect opportunity. People here who love you will support you. Whatever you've done that's amiss, whatever you need to do to make it right, please come while we stand and sing.